0: What is good am. Bush and welcome to another episode of the Desert Tiger podcast and I thank you for tuning in. I hope that all of you are well. I truly very much deeply hope that all of you actually are well in this time. I don't think we really need to dive that much into the details of this time. Maybe we will a little bit at the end, but right now at the start, do we really need to muddle things up because I know that most of you, a lot of you that tune into the Desert Tiger podcast, are looking for that sort of thing. And some of you, especially in this time, are possibly maybe looking for a distraction, so let's... Let's do exactly that. Let's look into a different aspect of the world that maybe, maybe one day we can hopefully return to so that maybe one day you can hopefully see our guest wrestle live in person. And of course, our guest today is Mr. Beefy Goodness Vance Nevada. And we're going to be giving you a little bit of a description on Mr. Beefy Goodness before we jump into our conversation with him here soon. I am, of course, your host on the Desert Tiger Podcast. I guess I should probably introduce myself here. I am the Colton G, host of the DTP. Of course, there's a few things that we have to jump into here and discuss before we get into that description. Of Vance, Nevada. So, why don't we go ahead and get that out of the way? First off, I just want to mention our website, ilovedtp.com. Last week, I happened to tell you guys that we're going to be getting some toques and some hats very soon. I mean, unfortunately, based on the state of where everything is right now, I'm not sure exactly when we're going to be getting those now. I haven't heard anything from the store, so. Maybe they're on quarantine, maybe they're not, but whenever I get those in my hands and as long as I find out that they are safe for shipping, I will put them up on the website and you guys can definitely go get them. Otherwise, we still have some t-shirts. Today's episode is also brought to you by Audible, and they happen to be offering you the Ambush, one free audiobook with a month-long trial subscription of the audio program, They have the largest selection of audio programs, and you can check that out at audibletrial.com slash deserttiger. Today's episode is also brought to you by Fight TV. Fight TV is the largest streaming service for combat sports, including professional wrestling, MMA, and boxing. You can find them in your app store. And on your browser right now, that is F-I-T-E dot T-V. Alright, let's jump into a little bit about Mr. Beefy Goodness, Vance Nevada. This May, Vance Nevada will celebrate his 27th year in professional wrestling. Considered as one of the most storied and respected Wrestlers currently in the Western Canadian scene, Vance is now celebrating a second wind after retiring for nearly five years due to injury. With his experiences ranging from being an in-ring talent, a booker, a trainer, a promoter, and even a historian and published author, with his 2010 release Wrestling in the Canadian West, it's safe to say that Vance has learned at least a few things along his journey. Making the most out of this second chance, Vance is truly valuing the opportunity to continue passing along the lessons he has learned while guiding a new wave of young wrestlers, and while continuing to document their growth as they continue to write their own histories. He has wrestled in all but one of the Canadian provinces and territories, with well over a thousand matches against both WWF veterans and some of the greatest talents who have come from around and north of the 49th parallel. And he continues to archive and shed light on those who paved the path before him in Canada. Today, Vance Nevada joins me for part one. That's right, part one of a conversation with him because there is a lot of ground to cover. Of course, in part two, you're going to hear a little bit about his book and a little bit about the Cauliflower Alley Club. That's another day though because today we are starting with his illustrious career as a wrestler beginning as a wide-eyed youth watching on as Hulk Hogan is betrayed by a trusted friend and ally. All right, you guys, I am incredibly excited to jump into this conversation with Mr. Beefy Goodness Vance Nevada. So why don't you say we go ahead and do that right now? Let's go! The Desert Tiger Podcast. Alright, we are here with Vance in Nevada, one of the most celebrated, one of the most respected, well-storied wrestlers in the Western Canadian scene, and he's also one of the historians that has helped build the history of Western Canada, a history that before his work and some other credible people seemed to lack a little bit of the respect that it deserved. So we're going to go through Vern with a little bit of his work in the wrestling world and maybe even touch into some of his life as a historian as well, a promoter, a little bit of a trainer, and everything else that Vern has accomplished in his amazing career. Sure, yeah. Let's dig in. All right, fantastic. So I saw before you happened to get into wrestling, before you were training, you were actually Covering wrestling in the press doing interviews with various wrestlers. So Did you have a love for wrestling? Beforehand being in the Winnipeg area or was that your introduction were you watching like the AWA and what Tony Candela was doing before that? What was your introduction in wrestling? You know what uh, when I was a kid
1: and my dad and and my mother both had uh, big families and so I remember my my uncles were all fans My grandpas were both fans. And so wrestling was always on perpetually. And, you know, it was kind of on in the background. I was a little kid. I was, you know, dealing with my Tonka trucks and things like that, not really paying attention. And it wasn't until about 1986. uh, And specifically, it was a match on Saturday night's main event where Paul Orndorff turned on Hulk Hogan. And this was like the craziest thing that I'd ever seen. And I was hooked instantly. And I had to see how this was gonna play out and uh, was a fan ever since and uh, early on you know you you think ah, it'd be cool to be a wrestler Uh, but you just can't declare something like that as a kid especially coming from a small town Uh, I'm from a town of about 2,500 people so to say you want to grow up and be a professional wrestler you might as well say your your uh, aspiration is to go to Mars it seems just about as likely Uh, so um, I also had an interest in writing A friend of mine who was a classmate of mine in school, he, uh, was a bit of an artist and he had like a three panel comic strip for the local newspaper. And he said, you know, if you get a press pass, you can get free tickets to anything uh, and get backstage at these places. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to go get a press pass. And so I, uh, did some voluntary writing for the community newspaper. They gave me a press card. And one of the first events that I got to cover was a WWE event at Winnipeg arena, And get backstage and interview Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Oh, wow. Uh, Then the next time they came through Manitoba, uh, I got
0: backstage and did like a a 30-minute interview with Bret Hart. Uh, So as a Canadian boy, especially like growing up, that was definitely a really big moment for you. Yeah,
1: so a 16-year-old kid hanging out backstage at WWE. That interview with Bret Hart actually eventually got printed in a wrestling magazine out of New York. Which was like really cool, you know, for for a kid that, you know, just aspired to be, uh, you know, in the wrestling business. And then, you know, we'd cover some independent shows. But, you know, watching on television, we were in a really great spot because in the 80s in Manitoba, we had the AWA out of Minneapolis, we had the WWF that was now emerging, and we also had Stampede Wrestling out of Calgary. Mm -hmm. So you had three hours of wrestling every week. This is pre internet, pre satellite exposure just to a lot of
0: the colorful characters and just uh, Okay, so around the time that you actually fell in love was around the time that Vince actually started making his way up north into Manitoba
1: Yeah, absolutely so it was uh, just a really awesome time to be a fan and I think everybody has an opinion about what was the best era of wrestling Uh, I think that a lot of the stuff that we try to impart upon some of the young wrestlers today, we go back to the 80s and take a look at what Vince was doing with the talent when he was trying to take wrestling from the from the cliche smoke filled arenas and make it mainstream pop culture Mm -hmm. Uh, because in many ways the struggle that we have on the independence today is the same there's not a lot of awareness from people about wrestling other than WWE Uh, so when you say oh I'm involved with wrestling I mean like Mm -hmm. WWE yeah, like that not that. Mm -hmm. And so when you can bring them out to the arenas, when they can kind of see some characters that they understand and relate to, it really goes back to what Vince was doing with that national expansion of his brand.
0: Mm -hmm. I find that issue a lot when you're trying to talk to people and it's like, oh, I happen to work within the industry. And it's like, oh, like amateur wrestling or like what Hulk Hogan does or like what The Rock does. And it's like, okay, yes, if that's the one person that you happen to know, then yes, that's exactly the reference that you're getting, but it's not nearly on the level that he was doing it that <laughs> agree.
1: But I think it, it's a great eye-opener for people that are practicing in the independence that the individual brands, whether it's All-Star Wrestling or ECCW or Thrash or Big West or Vancouver Island Pro, while we're very passionately invested in whatever organization we're working with,
2: mm-hmm.
1: ultimately the casual fan knows WWE and not WWE. Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe, maybe they have a concept of what, like, maybe what Lucha Libre is, and if there's someone who knows enough about wrestling, like, AEW's only been around for enough, WWE has pretty much been, like, the bread and butter of what is seen in national exposure for the last 20 years, so yeah. it's really hard to break outside of that, because when you come, whatever the card is, in Kelowna, like, Thrash and... Big West happened to run inside this town in different areas, whether it happened to be Rutland or West Bank or different areas, but at the same time, some of the people just know it as wrestling. Yes. Okay. So when you got to interview Jim Bronzel, was that your first live show that you got to experience?
1: Uh, No, the first time I ever went to see wrestling live, uh, you know, my dad, I think he was very amused at just how passionately I was like engaged in what I was seeing on television. And there was an independent show that came to our town the summer of, summer of 86. Uh, and I went, and it was, you know, I saw The Ring, and it got immediately excited. And I'm thinking that the characters that I know from TV are going to be there. And instead, it was this cast of characters that I'd never seen or heard of before. But immediately, I was wrapped up in the action. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember uh, one of the characters was a guy named Caveman Broda. And Chris Jericho actually talks about him in his first book, because mm-hmm. as he was breaking into the business, he was setting up rings with Caveman Broda mm-hmm. on a tour of northern Manitoba. But Broda, you know, was this, you know, this really dynamic little performer around Winnipeg. He never really went outside of Manitoba ever. At the time, in the mid-80s, he was a, a villain, and he had this, you know, in signature, campy, indie wrestling style, a red T-shirt, with white letters ironed on that said commie and that was all he needed to get heat as a heel and uh but just like fantastic bumps he could take that hard buckle and flip out, out over the over the top rope to the floor so later on you know when i got into the industry and and now i walked into the dressing room for the first time there's Caveman Broda. broda hmm. uh, and some of those guys that i had seen as a 10 year old kid now i'm a peer to those people and getting to learn from them so it was really kind of surreal the first six months of my career
0: okay well let's get into that how do you transition from writing about the wrestling industry and interviewing some of its bigger stars to actually getting inside of the ring yourself and taking your first bumps and learning your first moves
1: so i think it's probably one of the most uncommon stories ever when we were in high school uh, i had a french teacher who was trying to get people to learn french and getting passionate about french and then Rural Manitoba, there's not a lot of French-speaking people there, uh, unless you're in those specific communities. So what he had said to us is, if you watch Hockey Night in Canada on the French channel, I will give you credit for that. And I thought, this is really bizarre. Like, how could you even prove that we watched it? Like mm-hmm. yeah, We could be listening to it, not understanding a single word, but you're going to give us credit for that? And so I proposed this idea. I said, what if we staged a wrestling match? And did all of the, the promos and all the commentary for this thing in French. Mm-hmm. And he thought, yeah, that sounds cool. And so we had a lot of uh, kids, and particularly some of the kids in the class that were struggling to make the passing mark. We're like, yeah, we could do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we put it together. Uh, we got in touch with a promoter. It was actually the same promoter that had promoted that independent show in my town. Okay. To borrow a ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, yeah, he lent us a ring, I think, for 100 bucks. Oh. We set this wow. ring up in the school gym. Did this match, and it's like totally backyard horrible. If you were trying to, trying to watch it, I don't think there's any footage of it that remains. I'm, I'm hopeful, <laughs> um, but just a bunch of 16-year-old kids in there doing the thing. And then afterwards, I had a, a buddy who was kind of an AV guy. We sat in his house on a Saturday and, and did, you know, commentary in French, horribly, over over this uh, this match. So we, we got some credit for that in class. But uh, the promoter, when he came up to pick up his ring, was supposed to come up and get it and take it home. He said, listen, I'm busy. Can you just hold on to the ring and we'll get it back from you in a little while? I'm like, this is awesome. Now we've got a wrestling ring.
0: Where do you get these things, you know, right? An
1: actual ring. So we're in a farm town and one of my buddies has a big Quonset out behind his house. Mm-hmm. And so we set up this ring and a Quonset out behind his house. And basically had like our own little wrestling club Hmm. all summer long. And uh, we thought we were awesome. It was god-awful terrible. (laughs) Nobody knew how to do anything. But uh, eventually we staged a show and charged admission. It was the same night this guy was coming to collect his ring. And he watched us and he said, "Uh, you guys are pretty rough. But if you have an interest to go pro, give me a call. And uh, we can uh, train you to actually... Know what you're doing. So a month later, four of us out of the group of us that were doing it called him up and we went down and started training in mm-hmm. a little town called Somerset, Manitoba. And he, this gentleman, he was at the time 64 years old. His uh, primary occupation was working on the pipelines. But he was just this old Frenchman that had done some wrestling and promoting. Mm-hmm. And um, the training we got there was not stellar. I think when I left there, I had learned three moves it was like a hip toss a headlock takedown and a chop. Uh, so we left there the drizzling shits, mm-hmm. but it was a foot into the into the business mm-hmm. uh, that opened the door because he was very well-liked by the Winnipeg wrestling scene. And so he opened the door to get us our first matches. And within a year of uh, being called up you know, and, and getting a chance to wrestle in Winnipeg at the Chalmers Community Club, which was kind of like the, the Cloverdale, equivalent of Winnipeg anybody that started in Winnipeg typically wrestled at Chalmers within a year the other three guys had quit and it was Mm -hmm. just me left and uh,
0: we carried on Oh, wow, so you were the only one that made it through there, and you made mm-hmm. it on from there. So what was your first match like if you only knew three moves going into that?
1: Uh, I remember you know vividly, uh, we walked in, you know, there was a, an established group of guys there, and a lot of the guys that were around Winnipeg at that time had been very active in the territories in the 80s. So one of the guys there was uh, wrestling as Sergeant Tom Steele. He had been King Kong J.R. Bundy out oh, here for All-Star man. Wrestling in the 80s. Playboy Doug McCall had been in Vancouver in the 80s. Uh, Mike Stone had wrestled in Vancouver in the early 80s as Easy Rider mm-hmm. and had been a tag team champion out here. But he had also wrestled in Mexico and, and down in Kansas City in that territory. So you had some guys that had a bit of you know credentials and pedigree behind them. And then you've got me at this time, 17 years old, 161 pounds. I was, had no idea what I was in for. Um, But they came in and said, well, you know, you guys have been training together, so you should know each other's stuff. So you guys got 10 minutes and go to a Broadway. And no one had even clued me into what a Broadway was, Mm -hmm. uh, which means to go to a draw.
0: Yeah.
1: So we went out there and and did our thing. And, you know, within the first minute, we had used all our moves. And then it was just kind of like eight minutes of awkwardness. (laughs) Uh, And then I finished him with a really shitty sharpshooter and that was the end of the match and uh i remember as i was going to the back the chalmers community club it was like the gym was on the main floor and then you had to go downstairs into the basement into the locker room mm-hmm. and as i hit the stairwell i could hear the vets at the bottom like one guy had just been ahead of me in the stairwell going to the locker room and someone further down said how was that and i could hear him say well that was the shits <laughs> and i'm like well here we go uh, <laughs>
0: But, uh, yeah, I was, you know, persevered. Everybody's got to start somewhere. So if you don't really have, like, a proper introduction to training, how, how are you learning moves? Like, what is your progression like at the, this beginning stage of your career?
1: So the way, that they, uh, the way that they handled it was wrestling at that time was, like, every second Wednesday or something at Chalmers Community Club. The ring was stored at the club. So you would show up early, usually around noon or 1 o'clock, Uh, set the ring up they would train for three hours and then you would go and do your matches you know and sometimes it would be one specific move you would be working on like hey you know what you need to use a sunset flip tight in your match so let's work on sunset flips or you know drop kicks you're a young guy you know a light guy you should be able to fly around the ring so let's work on drop kicks Hmm. every now and then uh, Leatherface from Japan uh, he's originally Rick Patterson Uh, was his name he would come because he's originally from winnipeg and he'd be home visiting his family and he would pop in and he'd be like hey you know what? they're doing this new move in japan it's like a backwards somersault and they do it off the top rope you should try that and so you'd be like oh my god i'm so nervous and i get up on the top rope and try to do a moonsault to the floor Mm -hmm. and you'd have like the vets there that you know catch Mm you but uh, i remember like completely uh crashing and burning on a, on a moonsault to the floor and skidding down the ring post that had just been freshly painted. My t-shirt had this like big red streak down the back of it. it <laughs> my first uh, introduction to the moonsault. Um, but you know, and then, you know, as you, as you stick with it uh, in those days is much different than now. Now, if you start training and a trainer has taken your money, they typically try to make sure that you pay your full dues. So, They'll, they'll carry you along, whether they know you've got it or not. Mm-hmm. They want the full two grand or three grand or whatever it is they're training. Back at that time, basically their approach was, well, you know, because you were brought in by a respected promoter, you're not paying us for training, but we're not paying you. Mm-hmm. Uh, your training is, is part of sort of your, your apprenticeship into wrestling. Mm. So they would uh, bring people in, and if they didn't like you, they would discourage you. And so I saw a lot of guys come in and have one lesson or two lessons, get the hell beat out of them and never come back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the first lessons for me were very much like that. They beat the tar out of me. Um, and in fact, there is a videotape out there somewhere. I'm sure it's still sitting in Winnipeg. One of the vets that had been involved in my very first training session has a videotape of it. And it was uh, still VHS tape. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had it like on the shelf, on the bookshelf in his living room. And it was labeled jobber killing. And, uh, they beat the tar of me. The first bump that I ever took from an established vet was a superplex Oh my goodness. to give you a context of, you know, mm-hmm. and the only instruction I was given is go sit on the turnbuckle over there. Yeah. It was like 36 minutes of just being brutalized my goodness. and I expected, well, let's see if the kid comes back. And I kept coming back. And so after a year so much different climate than today Mm -hmm. after a year finally somebody said okay well this kid's not going away let's try to teach him some stuff and then you'd have vets that would kind of take you under their wing specifically and say hey let's let's go down and train or let's work on some stuff or let me talk you through some stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, and that guy was uh, Robbie Royce and he said uh, I think it was partly because he was being booked in a tag team that he didn't believe in and so we thought, well, if I can get this guy to work with me, then let's go get some matching jackets, and then we're off to the races, which is what we did. We bought a pair of matching ring jackets, and he started wearing his, and I was wearing mine. And the promoters were like, this is no good. You guys can't be wearing matching jackets. Oh, you different guys brought several parts of the
0: card. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and we were both in tag team situations that neither of us was really excited about. So they ended up putting us together as kind of like the little milk and cookies baby face team. Uh, for about two years in Winnipeg and it was mm-hmm. a tremendous opportunity for my growth working with Royce and and sort of learning you know timing and and character development and and then you sort of the you know he would he would he would agree that I was a stronger promo and weaker in the ring. Mm-hmm. he was stronger in the ring and weaker on promos and so we were able to help each other out a little bit during that time you know as we were working our way up.
0: Hmm. so he helped teach you a lot of the fine-tuning of the ring and
1: absolutely okay. yeah so we did I think about a year and a half together as a team and then when the team broke up we probably had about a year of feuding against each other hmm. so we spent a lot of time in the ring together between 1994
0: and 97 Oh Wow yeah so most of that was mainly in the Winnipeg area then at that time, the first
1: eight years of my career were Winnipeg. Uh, you might have a, like a weekend tour to Saskatchewan or something like that. But in the in the early 90s, there was almost no mobility between territories like you see today. Like you'll see, oh, the crew will leave and go do a week for CWE or they'll you know, go to Alberta and there's some talent trading back and forth. Mm-hmm. Back in the 90s, there was the Vancouver office and that was West Coast Championship Wrestling in the early 90s that later became kind of ECCW, mm-hmm. was a precursor for ECCW. Calgary had uh, Rocky Mountain Wrestling. Winnipeg had River City Wrestling. And Tony Candelo would yeah. do his thing. And it would be like, we're aware of each other's stuff, but nobody is, is going to the other companies mm-hmm. really with any uh, regularity. Vancouver typically didn't trade talent with Calgary or, or Winnipeg. They would bring up guys from Washington State or Oregon because mm-hmm. that was the traditional territory yeah the first eight years was Winnipeg our closest wrestling center from Winnipeg was Minneapolis okay. and that was eight hours away but Minneapolis was you know the AWA territory mm-hmm. so you had in the 90s you had a lot of hold ons from the AWA days you know that were a draw so you had Jim Brunzel was there or Brad Rangins, or Ken Patera mm-hmm. uh, Greg Gagne a little bit they were still headlining the cards. Then you had all the indie guys underneath that were Minnesota locals. So there was really no opportunity for anybody from outside to get in there at that time. And it wasn't until uh, 2001 that a guy named Eddie Watts, who was the guy that gave me my very first bump, that superplex. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had called me up. And and he mm-hmm. was a, a Manitoba guy uh, who had a lot of success. Uh, he worked Vancouver in the 80s. He worked Stampede in the 80s. Uh, the Maritimes was where he had his greatest success in Canada. But he'd also wrestled in Mexico quite a bit, Japan, and Puerto Rico. Okay. And he'd been a junior heavyweight champion for Carlos Colon's promotion in Puerto Rico. Hmm. Just a tremendous talent that uh, never got the visibility that he should have on a national stage. Intense guy, you know, like, a, like a bulldog. Like If he was around today, he would be a perfect fit for NXT.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Eddie Watts uh, had taken a like, liking to me. And, you know, kind of t- kept tabs on me, like, hey, we beat the crap out of this guy, and he's still here,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, years later. And so uh, in 2001, he said, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a word for you with Emile Dupree in the Maritimes, which was a huge honor. Because mm-hmm. when he would come in to Winnipeg, you know, and he wasn't there very regularly, he would just do his thing, stick to himself, very introverted. Uh, so he called Emile Dupree and uh, got me booked in 2001. So I went down to the Maritimes, and unfortunately, they had a very short season that year. We were only there for about three weeks instead of 12. Uh, they shut down, but then the following year, uh, things really started to take off. So I was touring a lot more uh, with the can Wrestling Federation out of Calgary. We did a seven-week tour of the Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was home, and uh, I got a call one night, Sunday night. It was Eddie Watts. He was in the Maritimes wrestling for a company called Real Action Wrestling. And he said, Listen, we got two guys here that aren't working out. We need you in Halifax on Wednesday. Bring two sets of gear because you're going to wrestle in a mask to take one guy out. And then you're going to wrestle as yourself to take the other guy out the first week around the loop. And then we'll carry on from there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a Sunday night. I have to be in Halifax by Wednesday. Now we're online. Luckily, it's internet time now.
0: Yeah, thankfully. Uh, You know, looking for plane tickets
1: or whatever. The price of the plane ticket, I couldn't afford it. So I was on a bus first thing Monday morning Hmm. from Winnipeg to Halifax. Wow. uh, To get there Wednesday morning Mm because I need to be there Wednesday night. And uh, I was wrestling uh, under a a lucha mask as insanity in the opening match. And, uh, you know, jobbing out one guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I would go to the back. I had one match to get changed. I was going out match three as Vance Nevada, mm-hmm. jobbing out the other guy. But that tour in the 2002 was such a tremendous breaking point from for my career mm-hmm. in terms of now we went from being regional, Winnipeg, to national. But the crew we had that year was unbelievable. So we had uh, Bobby Roode was there. Uh, and I had like a, a week around the loop with Bobby Roode. And uh, some of those matches were among my favorites. Uh, Mike Hughes from Prince Edward Island, who's still a headliner in Prince Edward Island, Mm -hmm. who's been to Japan and Korea and England and Germany, Puerto Rico. Uh, Gary Williams, Chi Chi Cruz, Mm -hmm. Eddie Watts, uh, myself. But then there was also a, a girl who was just emerging that year. She had just debuted earlier in the year named Sarah Stock, who went on to have great success in Mexico. And then in TNA as Sarita. Oh, okay. And now Uh she's an agent in the WWE. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had all these people there. So, you know, it was really, really intense physically. Uh, But Eddie Watts is a perfectionist. And he was the booker. And so we would go and do the show. Somebody would videotape it. And then we would come back to the place where we were staying they had rented us a three-bedroom, unfurnished apartment. So basically, we're all sleeping on air mattresses. It's very glamorous, independent <laughs> wrestling. You know, we've got... Like, all the glitz and the glam, baby. We've got maybe five or six pots and a microwave. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like glamping almost. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're camping out. But um, one of the guys on the tour uh, used his credit card, went down to Visions or whatever, bought a TV... Because you got thirty days, you can return that TV. Yeah. So you go and buy the TV. We had this big screen TV. We would tape the show. We'd come back after the matches and we'd watch the whole show back. Mm-hmm. So you might get back from the show by midnight. Now you're watching the show till two in the morning. He would pick it apart. He'd be like, hey, see this thing here? You were a little slow in the uptake. Let's improve this tomorrow. You know, this this spot didn't really work. Don't do mm-hmm. that anymore. Let's try this. You know, do more of this, less of this. Uh, and so you think about it, you know, we'd be doing that every day and then we'd get to the building and he was always there early. He'd say, he'd ask the ring crew, when's the ring going to be up? They'd say, it'll be up by one o'clock. He'd go, okay, we're going to be at the town by 1.30. And we would be in the ring from one thirty to 4.30 every day and wrestling every night. Mm-hmm. So you're training for three hours a day, fixing those two or three things that weren't working the night before. Then you're wrestling your match, and then you're getting that feedback immediately that night, and you're going. So, if you're improving two things in your repertoire every day, you're improving 14 things a week Mm -hmm. for eight weeks. So, and then we have guys that were also like super dedicated to making sure that we were training hard. So, we were in the gym every day and wrestling every day. And uh, when I came out of the Maritimes in 2002, uh, that's when I moved to Vancouver. But I arrived in Vancouver that summer in the best shape of my life, mm-hmm. uh, cardio through the ceiling, and and ready to conquer a territory. Just because you had been
0: working on every little
1: aspect of the you game just day by day, got to be immersed in the culture of wrestling without mm-hmm. the distractions of having to hold down a a job to support your wrestling habit. Mm-hmm. So hmm. yeah, so then we were in Vancouver. Wow, so that was quite the difference going from the Maritimes to Winnipeg for you then. Absolutely. And it was, you know, Winnipeg was there was really, you know, my pal Steve Stryker used to always say Winnipeg was geographically castrated because if you were in Washington or if you were in B.C., you had access to the Pacific Coast, Washington, Oregon, California, all within a reasonable drive. If you're in southern Ontario, you got access to Detroit or New York State where a lot of wrestling is happening. And you've got a greater chance of visibility from the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Winnipeg, the closest we had was Minnesota. And it was kind of a closed shop, really, in the 90s. So we weren't going to get spotted, incidentally, by anyone. Uh, we were going to have to get out and, and get that exposure. And there weren't a lot of guys, and there still aren't a lot of guys. I think if you talk to Danny Duggan, he'd agree that you know Danny is a career-minded guy, There's maybe a handful of other guys that you see, like A.J. Sanchez and Tyler Colton and Mentelo, who are career-minded guys and have traveled internationally, but a lot of the other guys, despite their talent, really don't have any ambition to go any further than they are. Mm -hmm. And that was the same thing there. People were kind of, you know, content to wrestle once every two weeks at a community center, you know, or, or, you know, a a nightclub every Monday night or whatever, and it was, you know, they were wrestling for beer money, and they were happy with that. Mm. They didn't really see a bigger picture. And so to go to a territory and be working with that level of talent, um, you know. actually while we were on the tour, uh, Bobby Sharp, Bobby Rude, Bobby Roode had been called up for a tryout. And so he was gone for a week in the middle of that in 2002 because WWE was taking a look at him. And then later on, we lost Eddie Watts for a week because he had to go to Japan. So just like the kind of things that were happening there and the interactions that were happening... Uh, when I came out of there, uh, you know, I was, that's really where they refined me and, and made me a headliner. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things were falling into place all at the same time. Just before the Maritimes, we had come up with Mr. Beefy Goodness, which was a complete wow. fluke. And then we started to sort of refine what does that character look like? Then I had uh, the Maritimes to test drive it out. So when mm-hmm. I got to BC and working for Michelle Starr, I was ready to, to take the top seat.
0: Okay, so it's going to that saying where you're basically the peop- the five people that, that you surround yourself with the most. So taking yourself from an area that maybe necessarily isn't as motivated to one that's very dedicated, made you very inspired and lit a fire underneath you to just go and take over wherever it was you were going from there. So yeah. what was the move that led to Vancouver? What was the actual, like... Thing that drew you to BC?
1: Sure. I have uh, my wife to credit for that entirely. So uh, in 2002, my career had really started to take off. And before the Maritimes, I'd done the Northwest Territories tour. I was getting called from promoters who were running week-long tours out of province. And so I think in the first 19 weeks of 2002, I was on the road fully away from home from 13 of those. And the remaining six weeks weren't even all together. It would be like, oh, maybe four days here and mm-hmm. a couple days there. because We are on the road nonstop. And so my wife said, listen, I'm happy that things are taking off for you. But if you're going to be on the road, you need to know I hate Winnipeg. And so we're not going to live here anymore. And so I said, hey, wherever you need to be happy, because if wrestling is going to be this like this for me where, you know, I get a call and I'm on a plane or I'm in a car or on a bus, mm-hmm. then... Uh, I can do that from anywhere. So uh, while we were in the Maritimes, she moved us to Vancouver. Uh, she's originally born in Abbotsford. Okay. And so spent, you know, her early years in, in the Fraser Valley, uh, but had a lot of family. Both her grandparents, both sides of her family were in Vancouver. So she said, that's where we're going to be. So uh, she moved us out. And then when I was done in the Maritimes, met her out here. Okay. Okay.
0: Alright you guys, I wanna jump into exactly where the name Mr. Beefy Goodness came from right away, but we need to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors here and that is Fight TV. Fight TV is the premier streaming service for hard hitting combat sports like pro wrestling. MMA and boxing and they're also adding other sports all the time they recently just added some soccer so if you're one of those people looking for stuff like that there you go. I mean right now Fight TV also knows that maybe some of you maybe are feeling a little bit of a pinch financially so not only do they want to entertain you they also want to help you out and they're putting a lot of previous pay-per-view programming on sale right now some of it as much as 80% off my goodness that's incredible that's incredible Plus, they have a ton of free programming currently in their backlog as well from groups like the Bare Knuckle Fighting Championships, and they also have weekly programming from groups like MLW and Ring of Honor, so you know that if you're feeling a little bit of a fix for that combat sports while everything is shut down, Fight TV has you covered. That is I T E. T V and you can find them in your app store or by visiting their website. The Desert Tiger Podcast. Awesome. So one thing I want to speak about is you mentioned that before you went to the Maritimes was when you started to build and craft the idea of Mr. Beefy Goodness. Yeah. So exactly what was your character or what was your what were you trying to portray before Mr. Beefy Goodness sure. and then What was the development of Mr. Beefy Goodness like? Because developing a character can be definitely hard, and you want to include part of yourself within that so that it kind of comes naturally as well, which I find a lot of people don't really have that in a lot of the characters they do. But like, So what was it like going from whatever you were before the Beefy Goodness to what was the transition like, and then what was building that character like? What was developing it like?
1: You know what? When I started, uh, and it, now you have uh, a situation where if you come in and you're working with the promoter, they'll say, well, what's your ring name? And, and you just tell them, and they're like, okay, cool. And they put it on the sheet and they go. Back in those days, you would walk in the locker room and the promoter would tell you what your name is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in, in, you know, even in the case of Arn Anderson, Arn Anderson's first match on television in the 80s wasn't as Arn Anderson. They just gave him a name and Mm -hmm. put him in the ring. But uh, so for me, when I started, I was 17 years old. Most of the guys that were there were guys from the 80s. So, you know, they're in the late 20s, early 30s. So I was distinct, right? So they said, well, we're going to call you Vance the Kid. Vance the Kid, Nevada.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, And what I didn't know at the time was, it was actually a rib on me because there was a wrestler in Vancouver in the 80s called Chris the Kid, Nevada. And he was the shits. No. And so it was kind of like saying, uh, you know what? There was Chris the Kid, Nevada, and he was the shits. And you're Vance the Kid. We'll call you Nevada, because basically we think you're the shits. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Like, here's my name. Okay. How are you supposed to? I'm know off to Nevada. the races, Vance Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a name that was given to me. And I was fortunate, I guess, because a lot of guys have a have a bit of a journey in finding their ring name. They have three or four gimmicks that they kind of try out, and regardless of what things they've tried to do with the character over the years is we've always had the same name so then they had this idea that you know what uh after my rookie year they said well let's let's sort of put over this idea that he's not a kid anymore so we'll call him rock advance nevada so he want you to wear a leather jacket to the ring and go out there and do it and then, and i'm not musical in any way mm-hmm. so that really wasn't a thing uh, then they had an idea. They wanted me to wear a cowboy hat and, and be, cause they said, you kind of look like country singer, Randy Travis. So, you know, wear a cowboy hat and carry a guitar. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, but I was trying like different ideas and just throwing ideas against the wall and, and nothing really stuck. Um, so in that, this is about 2001, uh, started touring a lot more and I ended up in Saskatoon uh, for a promoter there called pro outlaw wrestling. And one of the guys that they had kind of, uh, you know, doing the creative for them was a guy named James Scott, and and uh, his he was the referee for the company, and he had a rib name. His ring name was Dixon Butts, and uh, but now he lives in England. He's a film producer, very creative guy. So the first time that I wrestled for them, I had shown up, and, uh, you know, they really were kind of a hardcore territory. There was a lot of guys wearing jean shorts and ripped t-shirts and, you know, doing hardcore matches and that kind of stuff, very ECW influenced. And I showed up and they really didn't know what they want to do with me. And I just showed up in a pair of little black trunks. And, uh, typically I'd worn like long tights or singlets up to that point And I thought, I'm just, I'm just trying something out and, uh, was involved in a three-way hardcore match and, Uh, came out in just trunks and the crowd reacted so strongly to that they actually started a chant and there was like one side of the ring to the other it was who wears short shorts vance wears short shorts and it like actually like almost ruined the match because it dominated Mm -hmm. you know the crowd's attention and they were just like you know for 10 minutes straight this this chant going back and forth across the hall So the promoter and the booker, they said, listen, next time you come back, we've got this idea because they reacted to your your trunk so strong. We want you to get a pair of tearaway pants. And when you come to the ring, you're going to come to the ring with this letter and say, hey, I'm really I'm really upset because I got this letter saying if I show up in Saskatoon in my little black trunks, they're going to send me home without pay. And the whole crowd erupts. Big ovation. Yeah, send them home. And I said, but that's no problem for me because, boom, tearaway pants, my yellow ones are so much sexier. And uh, so that's where the tearaway pants thing started, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so then you think, well, you know, if we got the bright yellow trunks and that gets a reaction, uh, what what more could we do to make that louder? Okay, mm-hmm. well, let's make them pink trunks. And let's make them look like tidy whities That's how that sort of evolved. And then you're like, you know, you come out, especially with kind of that, like, stern, you know, aggravated look on my face, you know, wearing all dark colors over top. People have think they have an idea what this character is. Mm-hmm. And then the Tearaways is always an unsettling thing. Like, oh, we didn't see that coming. So I was on another tour for that same company. Uh, we were wrestling in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And one of the wrestlers said, hey, you like to cut promos at the start of your match and pick on the fans? I said, yeah. He goes, my sister's here tonight. It's the first time she's ever been to live wrestling, and it's her birthday. You know, could you uh, single her out? I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I can. Point her out to me. And so I went out, and I did such a good job, and she was so thoroughly embarrassed that the next time we came back to Prince Albert, as soon as she heard my music, she went and hid (laughs) in the back. She was sitting in the front row again, but she went and hid behind the chairs. So I could see her out of the corner of my eye, and so I go in the ring and I cut my promo and said whatever I was going to say about Prince Albert and the people. And just as I was about to hand the microphone back, I see her pop up because she thinks she's safe. And I'm like, wait! I say, see that girl right there? And now everyone's looking. She's like sneaking around behind the chairs back there. She's going to try to come through the crowd, come over the guardrail, come in the ring, and grab two handfuls of my beefy goodness. And to this day... I have no idea how that phrase, beefy goodness, came into my head. But when I turned around to wrestle, my opponent was laughing so hard. We had to delay the start of the match. And he's a long haired guy, and he had thrown his hair over his face, but you could just see his shoulders vibrating. And so I'm kind of like, you know, taunting the crowd and do the tearaways and then get that reaction. And I get to the back, and everyone in the back is going, ah, oh, beefy goodness. And it was like this big laugh. And so they said, do that again tomorrow night. Beefy goodness. Single somebody out. Beefy goodness. And by the end of the week, it had stuck. Mm -hmm. And I went directly from that tour to a tour of the Northwest Territories with Can-Am and said, hey, we just started this thing. What do you think? We try it out here. And by the end of that tour, right, everybody was walking into the bar. You know, we'd go into the bar after a night out of the wrestling, and they were all introducing themselves as, hi, I'm Mr. Beefy Goodness. Mm -hmm. And they were just you know when when you get a, a character that the boys in the back have responded to so strongly you realize we're onto something here mm-hmm. so now let's take those bright colored trunks and put the word beefy across the back uh because whenever you get in front of a new audience that doesn't know mm-hmm. right they're going to remember that beefy guy and so it's become a message that I try to tell guys you know that are coming up in the business is you can be the greatest wrestler but if you're just another guy in, in black trunks and black boots, uh, and you haven't given the people something that they can latch on to, if they're coming to indie wrestling for the first time, by the end of the night, they might not remember who's who. Give them a reason to to rem- remember you and be able to say to the promoter, that guy in the pink trunks or that beefy guy, I hated his guts. I want to see someone kick his ass because that promoter is seeing money. And that you know ultimately led to me being you know. Booked as a heel for the rest of my career in a very safe spot because wrestling will always need heels. Every promoter has is booked their their local babyface, their Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. and they need heels for him to vanquish to to build his legend. I'm very true. Sure. And so, if you tried to be a top babyface and be a traveling babyface, it's a harder harder uh, gimmick to sell.
0: Nobody knows who you are. It's harder to get them to cheer you right off the bat. Yeah,
1: but as that top heel. I can cut the promos from here. Now with internet, we can have those promos airing in the market where you're going to be. They fly you in. You have the big showdown with the champ. Make them look like a million bucks and fly home. You've done your job. So that's been tremendously um, beneficial to my career and being able to travel lots. Uh, you come in, you know, did multiple tours of the East Coast and the Maritimes, and Newfoundland. Uh, and now I've wrestled in every province except Quebec but uh, so that's on my bucket list before I wrap up I want to have a match in Quebec. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully that can happen for you there. Yeah. So, Vancouver. Um in researching this interview, I happen to notice that you took a little bit of time before you won the championship in Vancouver and before that, you had quite the string of losses. Yeah. So, was that like was that a booking decision? Was that a personal decision that you like came in and like asked them so that you could put over the territory when you were coming in, like what was the, you know what, uh, what was that? Uh, I had
1: asked for that spot. Okay. And, and what had happened was, when I was in the Maritimes in 2002, the money wasn't good, and there was a lot of questionable accounting happening. And so in that whole eight weeks that I was in the Maritimes, I never had a payoff that was on time, or in full, or didn't bounce. Uh, and then midway through the tour, they were running into so much trouble. They said, listen, we're going to cut all non-essential staff. Well, you haven't even paid me enough that I can afford to go home. So now I'm stuck in the Maritimes. So the very last check, uh, that they gave us, uh, they kind of let us know that day. Like, Oh, you know, we we thought we were working till the end of August. It's like the 27th of July. They let us know that day. Tonight is our last night. Tonight is the last show. So We got no warning we can make wow. no no plans uh, and I was right then at that moment like a week behind in pay so I couldn't even walk because I'm still waiting for pay. Uh, so I went out and, and did my match and they gave me a check and I knew it was gonna bounce but I also need to get home. so I put it in the bank I told my wife you know cash that check immediately so that we can afford to pay rent uh, at home uh, and we're gonna have to deal with the consequences of the bank later on so I left there and I was just kind of burned out a little bit you know I've been pushing hard but you know doing all the things you're supposed to do as a wrestler but you know just that that financial setback was really a blow and you know I'd also dealt with like the politics of Winnipeg wrestling you know at a point there where I'd been there for so long that I could kind of write my own ticket I could show up and say yeah this is the program I want um You know, no promoters really pushed me hard. Just like, yeah, Vance, we know he'll deliver, so we'll, you know, we'll let him do this or that. And I really wanted to earn it. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to start from the bottom, and so I came into the territory. And Michelle Starr said, "Who do you want to work with? You gotta, you know, who 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 would you like to have an angle with?" And I said, "If it's all the same with you, I'd just like to work the opener." And he looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah, no doubt. And I said, you know what, just let me work the opener. I've got this idea for a spot. And it was kind of a play on uh, Shawn Michaels' showstopper gimmick, right? It was a little bit of a parody on that. But as a heel, uh, come out in the opener as the first face they see through the curtain. And then cut that promo before the match to say, right now I am the single most important person in your life. Because I'm the opener. I'm the guy who's going to get the ball rolling. I'm the guy that's going to get you stewing in your own juices. Right. I'm going to, you know, it's my job to set the tempo for this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they were saying, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Listen, you need to give me respect because I'm not going to wrestle until I get my point out. And the longer that you talk and I can't finish my statement, I can stand here all night long and work the opener. And whenever there was an opportunity to do so, put over the local talent and, I really hadn't considered the politics of putting over the, the local talent at that time. But um, six months later, you know. meanwhile, while I'm doing the opener for Michelle Starr in Vancouver, when I'm getting booked other places, they're still booking me in main events.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm going to Saskatoon for Pro Outlaw Wrestling and wrestling with Wavell Star and a kendo stick match in the main event, and I'm coming back with fresh gashes on my forehead. And Michelle Starr looked at me one time when I came back from one of these trips and my forehead was all scarred up. And he said, you son of a bitch, you've been holding out on me. No more openers for you. It's time for you to be a main eventer. Mm-hmm. And he started the the progression right there, you know, working me towards the ECCW title. And when it was time for me to get my push, I would now put over every single guy uh, that was in line uh, for me to, to, to work through to get to the champ. So they also had no problem not doing the job for me because I just put them over big and clean in the middle, uh, you know, with with no ego, and so they put the belt on me and gave me a, a good long run. I was a champion for 14 months as ECCW champion, uh, and then later NWA Canadian champion for another year. Uh, so you know, it it wasn't uh you know I wasn't thinking long term politically about it. I was just thinking, you know, I. I just I just want to earn my spot,
0: hmm. and so you know, we did. Okay, so Vancouver, you end up becoming ECCW champion, NWA Canadian heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. So among those title runs that you had, do you have a favorite among those times that like was one stick out the most for you, or just the programs that you were running while you had the belt?
1: I think or, uh, you know the. There were so many matches at that time because, you know, we, were, we had a lot of the 80s WWE legends coming in at that time. So I got, had to have matches with Jim Neidhart and the Honky Tonk Man and Matt Bourne, which fantastic. fantastic. Uh, it was really, really great. I think probably the title match with Scotty Mack is, is a match that it actually still gets talked about 18 years later. they were in the locker room and Azeem the Dream had been there live and he's telling people, the, this cage match the I had with Scotty Mack in, in 2003 was off the chain and we really wanted to do something different. And we had been building up to this showdown. And I said, Scotty, what if we do this? What if, uh, what if it gets rough right off the bat? Like there's blood before the opening bell and there was, and, uh, I, I had, uh, a nice big gash on my forehead. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, calculated how that was going to be a problem on a vinyl canvas because there was points in the match where I'm bleeding so heavily that I'm slipping and sliding and trying to run the ropes. Michelle Starr's wife was, like, tugging on his arm, telling him to, to stop the match. Because like, all you could see on my face were my eyeballs and my teeth.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: you know, it was like the, the cliché crimson mask, 12 stitches uh, later on. But I think, you know, the... The match took place. I'm, I'm the the new ECCW champion. Um, you know, we did it in a way that you know Scotty Mac stays strong as sort of the franchise player of the organization. But I, I think what I remember most about the night is is getting to the back, taking a few pictures, and I just like wiped enough of the blood that was crusted in my eye sockets out, mm-hmm. so that I could drive to the hospital to get stitched up, and walked in thinking that if I look like I've just come out of a scene from Die Hard that that's going to be like fast tracked into the back, but it, you know it's just another Saturday night in Surrey. So yeah, there was no there was no additional sympathy, and and I had learned you know you never tell the triage nurse that you got hurt wrestling because they they don't write wrestling on the form, they'll write horseplay, right? Like oh yeah, I was wrestling and I got hurt. Oh, oh horseplay, you know, roughhousing. So, I'm trying to explain what happened in, in a way that is, is a literal translation of the event. So, I said, I was climbing this chain link fence and I lost my footing and cut my head on the top of the chain link fence. And uh, she kind of looks up at me. And again, this is a Saturday night in Surrey. She says, uh, You must have wanted to get in somewhere really, really bad. Mm-hmm. I said, No, I was trying to get out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, security's watching me. <gasps> Right, for the rest of the night. And so uh, I finally get in, and uh, three hours later, I get my stitches. And it's been now all day. Like, cause you, you know, you're running on adrenaline when you're going to the show, so you don't eat probably from four o'clock in the afternoon. Now we're at three o'clock in the morning. I am starved. Uh, I've got my stitches in. I'm still a, a mask. I clotted blood in my ears, and my hair is all standing up back in the days when I had hair. And we went to the McDonald's drive through. Placed my order. They took my order. I got to the window. They saw me and said, "Sorry, we're closed." At a twenty-four hour drive-through. Uh, wow. So, had to circle the block. Me get out of the car. My wife go back to McDonald's and order uh, just so that I could get some food. So that, that was that one stands out. Um, the matches with Honky Tonk Man because uh, he is just such a unique character in and of himself, and some of the promo work that we did leading up to honky tonk there was one that kevin mcdonald shot uh we were taping tv in squamish and he just said honky cut a promo for us it's 30 seconds long i hadn't seen it he goes so i need you to cut a promo and then we're going to cut to this inset so i just need you to look over this direction and react to that for one minute and so you're reacting to nothing Mm -hmm. and I watched that promo back and think like considering how that was put together. It actually turned out pretty good Where you know my reactions were kind of in step with what he hmm. was saying So, you know, those are definitely you know, fond memories of that
0: time. Wow. That must have been incredibly difficult to pull something off like that
1: Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's a unique experience for sure
0: <laughs> We're gonna be jumping into the 2010s for Mr. Vance Nevada, of course, that being his retirement and his comeback with a few other things tossed in there as well. But of course, we need to take a quick moment to tell you guys about Audible. Audible is offering you, the listeners of the Desert Tiger podcast, the Am. Bush. They're offering you one free audio book with a 30-day trial subscription of the Audible service. And let me tell you, if you're someone who's into wrestling biographies, Audible might be just the place that you want to go ahead and check out. Well, maybe you have a little bit of downtime waiting for those bookings to pick back up. I know it's something that I'm waiting for, unfortunately. And while you're waiting, let me tell you that they happen to have Jim Ross's new book that's coming out on March 31st under the Black Hat. They also have a ton of other titles, like The Death of WCW, Mary Kane by Glenn Jacobs. The Best in the World by Chris Jericho. They even have Justin Roberts' book, Best Seat in the House. They have a ton of different options because let me tell you, Audible has the largest selection of audio programs available on the internet right now and you can check that out and get started by heading on over to Audible Trial dot com slash desert tiger once again that is a u d i b l e t r a i l dot com slash desert tiger all right let's jump back into this conversation with vance nevada the desert tiger podcast going from the mid 2000s let's head into beginning in 2010 with the CNWA you tried getting a few of the promotions from across Canada together to promote some touring bills of yourselves so you had a little bit of a tour of a promoting aspect to your career beforehand with just wrestling in the Vancouver area uh, beforehand so was this like your first full-time actually going about the touring circuit as a promoter? And what was that experience like going from being just a talent to actually trying to book not only just one market, but different markets?
1: I think, you know, one thing that people don't realize is I never had an aspiration to promote wrestling ever. Uh, And even when I was promoting, I still didn't want to be the guy promoting. Um, What I saw with wrestling and particularly with CNWA is you know, as we talked about earlier, wrestling on the independence has such a low visibility that the individual activities of every promoter are off the radar of the casual wrestling fan. And if you try to explain it, when you start to actually get down into the nuts and bolts of it and say, "Well, in British Columbia, for example, right now, there are 10 different promotions, which means there is 10 heavyweight champions and 10 tag team champions and 10 cruiserweight champions or whatever that might look like, 10 ladies champions. Well, if you've got 10, now which one matters?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and to try to explain that to people that didn't even know there was one champion, now this seems very convoluted, right? They know in the NHL there's 84 teams and there's one championship. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got conference championships and mm-hmm. whatever, but there's one championship. You know, and the same with Major League Baseball, and the same with basketball and, you know, football. So, and when there is a distinction, it's like CFL-NFL. They get it. This is the Canadian one. This is the American one. Mm -hmm. But if now the CFL has 20 championships in a year, like the, the, the prestige of the Grey Cup doesn't matter. And so I'm trying to explain to, you know, the the wrestling promoters, listen, if you look back at Stampede Wrestling, and and everyone up until until my book, when you talked about the history of wrestling in Canada, it was Stampede Wrestling. That was the depth of it. Mm -hmm. Stu Hart, the Hart Brothers, Stampede Wrestling, um, certainly they were a big piece. Uh, You know, they promoted more shows than anybody else by volume. uh, Produced probably the most stars of any of the circuits in Canada. Um, you know, per capita. But uh, Stampede Wrestling wasn't just Stu Hart. Stu Hart promoted Calgary. He had different promoters promoting the other towns. So it was Mike Bulat in Edmonton, and he had Ned Powers in Saskatoon, and he had Pinky, uh, Pinky Jacobs, Porky Jacobs in uh, Regina, and Bus Murdoch in Lethbridge. But they all agreed that Stu Hart is in Calgary and has TV. It makes sense if we're all aligned with this brand, we're using all the same talent, let's promote under this brand and use TV as that vehicle to make it all stronger. Mm -hmm. Because when you can bring the talent to town that is on television, it seems bigger. So let's look at that model, right? And it can work again. So if you have a Big West or thrash wrestling that promotes the Okanagan, Mm -hmm. nobody else is promoting the Okanagan. It's not like we're barring anyone from doing it, but geographically it makes sense. You're in the Okanagan, you got All Star in the Lower Mainland, you've got what we're doing in Red Deer in Southern Alberta, the promoter that just runs Edmonton, the promoter that just runs Lethbridge, you've got the promoter in Saskatchewan, the promoter in Manitoba. Why aren't we all aligned under one brand? Uh, because it, it helps the public to understand, but it also gives us a greater platform of visibility for the trade media, like Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine, to say here is a CNWA superstar, and when that brand encompasses four provinces, and I think very similar to what CWE is doing now, mm-hmm. you have one brand that's touring five five provinces, six provinces. Anybody that has their finger in that is suddenly national, even if they're not touring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had our own magazine for a while. We did ten issues of a magazine that now is promoting the storylines and the characters from each company across promotional boundaries Um, and as a result now the CNWA national title is being recognized by Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine Mm -hmm. and they've got pictures of our champion in there multiple times and anybody in Canada that is now associated with CNWA is now being considered in the PWA top 500 Bambi Hall was a runner-up for rookie of the year which is the first time that a Canadian had been in that in that Rookie of the Year category since Chris Benoit in 1987. So for more than 20 years, Canadian wrestling had been ignored by the media, and now all of a sudden, the CNWA National Champion is getting booked to go to do a tournament in Los Angeles against Drew Gulak. Uh, you know, we're getting consideration for the talent in the Cauliflower Alley Club. Bobby Sharp wins the Future Legend Award. A year or so later, Bambi Hall was nominated. No, I think Bambi was actually nominated the same year as Bobby Sharp. Uh, Off of that visibility, right? It it created such an awareness of Canadian wrestling. And I think it could still work today. Mm -hmm. Where you've got the promoters that just do Vancouver Island. You've got the Lower Mainland. You've got the Okanagan. You've got people that are geographically unique. If we could band together under one brand, we have a chance of actually having... Visibility with the mainstream media and credibility, and pooling resources. So, if if for example I'm a guy that's backstage and I'm helping with all the press releases and all the media engagement, for me to do a press release every week talking about All Star Wrestling and its subsidiaries, All Star Wrestling Thrash and the Okanagan All Star Wrestling, you know, uh, VIPW on the mm-hmm. island, egos will never allow that to happen. And there's, a, and there's a lot of personality conflicts, we might not be able to create it. But for that two-year period, we had a recipe for success. Mm-hmm. And really the catalyst to bring that together was we had a, an individual, uh, Fred May, from Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had been the producer for Stampede Wrestling for years. Mayford Productions was his uh, deal. He was the guy that got Stu Hart syndication in the 80s. He's the guy that produced Pro Wrestling Plus that was on TSN with Ed Whalen. Yeah. Uh, so he had a lot of experience in television. Mm-hmm. And he said, listen, I can get you national TV. Okay. If you're going to get us national TV, I don't know of any one promotion anywhere in Canada that has a strong enough roster top to bottom that we could just put that brand on TV. We need to bring an amalgamation of the best of the best. So, you know, we're in Alberta. Let's bring in Kyle Sebastian from the Okanagan combined with Bobby Sharp in Edmonton, Danny Duggan from Winnipeg, Casey Andrews Uh, on the women's side. Let's get Bambi Hall, who was just emerging at that time, bring her in with some experienced girls like Ria Von Slasher. And then you've got like this sort of like supporting cast of really credible vets, to prop up those emerging stars who should be headliners. Mm -hmm. And where things started to fall apart and, and what led to the death of CNWA was after two years, TV still hadn't materialized. So we're putting out money to get TV tapings happening. We probably taped ultimately about 11 episodes of television, you know, in that time. Sometimes with some big names, sometimes not. But TV never came to be. There was a, like a web series where they would r- release some matches and they did a few DVDs. But when TV didn't happen, promoters get impatient mm-hmm. and say, wait a minute, why are we, why are we involved with this? Uh, we should just focus on our own brand. And then it just started to deteriorate from there.
0: Hmm. And so, so at that point, the egos sort of started to come back in and then people are probably wondering, why are you booking my person this way? And
1: absolutely and then 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 when when the belts got introduced, then it became very, very political. Everyone was campaigning specifically for their guy to be the champ. So you know, and then it it kind of fell apart. okay.
0: So around the time that it fell apart was also around the time that you retired, yeah, I guess we would say so. Sure. What led to your initial retirement?
1: I had a match with Adam Pierce in September 2012. And the uh, finish of the match was supposed to be my corner man uh, throws in the towel. But Pierce gives me a pile driver. And then just because he wants to add insult to injury, we'd had a series of three matches. He was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. When he gives me a second pile driver, my corner man is supposed to throw in the towel. He didn't. Oh. He misunderstood. And for whatever reason, he thought that he was looking for two, three suplexes Mm -hmm. or two suplexes, not two pile drivers. And those are very vastly different, but regardless. So on the third pile driver, I came down a little hard. And after the match, I felt a little bit fuzzy, but you know, I just sort of attributed to the fact that, you know, you're dealing with show day stresses. All day, you know, your your own match plus the rest of the show and the logistics and the TV taping and all of that hadn't eaten enough, but I felt a little lethargic, felt a little bit fuzzy. Over the next, you know, several weeks, it was it was getting worse. Very intense headaches, uh, and I started to like have to cancel appearances. and mm-hmm. say, hey, I know I'm booked in Kelowna this weekend. My my fit, my head, I can't do it. But I will show up and do autographs or be guest referee in the main event or something mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to fulfill my obligations. But what, what I ended up discovering when I finally did get an MRI is that I had a narrowing of the spinal column at two points in my neck. Yeah. Uh, and so they said, there's, what we can see is you've got uh, some, some compromised uh, discs in your neck. And there's no evidence of spinal fluid actually supporting your brain. And so if you continue on this path, we can guarantee you, you will be in a wheelchair. And so at the time, I have a two-year-old at home. It's a pretty easy decision for you to make to say, okay, we need to quit. So I did, but I was still the head of the CNWA. So I'm still on the road as much. Mm -hmm. Still the first guy in the town because I'm pulling the ring. The last guy out. But it was incredibly frustrating because, you know, you're watching guys that get to do the fun part they get to show up and perform and frustrating for me if, especially if I saw a performance that's like those guys totally missed the mark on that match right if I had been in there doing the stuff that I do right we could have been you know could have had that crowd really amped up so it was kind of a combination of things and then at the same time I was so immersed in CNWA that other areas of my life started to to take a back seat I just needed to To be done with it you know the politics were mounting within CNWA. tv hadn't materialized there was additional stresses for me as i was like a one-man show you know booking and coordinating and writing the magazine and all those things i just you know for my health Mm -hmm. i
0: needed to just get away well even to add a magazine on top of that like promotion alone just like making sure that there's posters and making sure that the talent's all booked and they know what they're doing and everything else alone adding the rest of that on top of that that must have been like yeah and there was there was things like you
1: know I was I was working my day job and I'm trying to figure out how do we finance you know getting a really top quality national heavyweight championship we don't want to just go and you know buy a discount belt or or get something done so we we dealt with Dave Milliken and Rico Mann who are the best Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know they work with Reggie Parks who is Reggie Parks is kind of considered the king of wrestling belts yeah And so we worked with Reggie and we said, you know, we want to get this national championship made. It was something like $2,500 U.S., so significant money. So I'm wondering, like, okay, how am I going to do this? So in my job, we had a a seasonal shutdown uh, over the Christmas break Mm -hmm. uh, where you're sent home. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to use this time. I'm going to go get an overnight security job working at a hospital uh, just to bring in some extra money to fund You know, the creation of the national title. So I was working 12-hour shifts overnight at a hospital about an hour away from my home. And I did this, you know, for for like three weeks straight. And then, you know, we were almost at enough money to have the belt made and uh, weren't quite there. So I said, I'm going to do another week. So I'm doing this. I'm going to my day job eight hours a day, coming home, napping for two hours, and then going doing overnight 12-hour shifts. Uh, So I'm working 20 hours a day Uh, because it's all with this goal in mind it's all focused on CNWA and finally we reached a breaking point because I was driving back uh, from this overnight shift at the hospital and fell asleep at the wheel and uh, fortunately uh, only my truck was destroyed Hmm. I had had fallen asleep and woke up just as I was about to uh, rear end a vehicle in front of me and instead of turning into the ditch my instinct was to turn the other way and actually, like ended up shaving between uh, an oncoming vehicle and the vehicle in front of me. Uh, it it uh, popped both front tires of my truck, and just left me like sitting there in the middle of the highway. And so it's kind of like you know wake up call. Like I, I walked away unscathed. My insurance, of course, took a pounding mm-hmm. uh, from that, but it was all this sacrifice to build the CNWA. But then you realize like, I'm the only guy running this hard, you know, we ask for help postering a town or, uh, you know, help, uh, getting the press releases out or something like that, you know, and those calls are falling on deaf ears. People just wanted to show up and do their thing on show day. And it just, you know what, this is too much. This is too much. And and now my, my personal life is suffering my health potentially. It's time to, to take a step back. And, uh, and get get into something else. Okay. So, uh, sold the ring, mm-hmm. actually gave my boots away hmm. uh, to, the, to the kid that I wrestled my last match with. Wow. And uh, and moved from Alberta to Manitoba. To just hmm. just knowing myself, you know, I'd go home and get bored, you know, and six months later say, oh, you know I'm just gonna go visit those guys. I'm just gonna go up and check out the show and say hi to the guys. And the next thing you know, you're guest refereeing, and the mm-hmm. next thing you know, you're back in. I said, I just, I don't want to tempt myself that way. And so I moved back to Soros, Manitoba and, uh, you know, got into a whole different career field for a while and and just sort of put wrestling out of my mind mm. for a couple of
0: years. So then what exactly was it that drew you back? Was it the doc, like, did you get cleared by a doctor and then suddenly, like, the itch came back? Was it just the year suddenly came on and then, like, through just doing, like, research and other things that, like, yeah, you Not know either. what, it's, what
1: was it? it started with uh, sort of a, a progressive uh, healing of my neck. So at its worst, you know, in, in 2013, you know, we are in the tail end of the CNWA. The doctors were all sure that I was definitely headed for neck fusion. So they weren't doing anything really other than just medicating it and, and waiting. Uh, I had a, an appointment with the... Uh, the spine, uh, clinic at the university of Alberta coming up. So they're like, you know what? we know you're going to get your, your neck fused. So we're just going to patch you up and and keep you going. So every 10 days, the, the migraines would get so intense. I'd be in the emergency room at the Lacombe hospital. Hmm. They'd give me a shot of Toradol, uh, just to calm everything down, uh, so that I could sleep. And, and that was good. So 2013, it was every 10 days. Uh, the following year it was every six weeks the year after that it was about every three months Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we reached a point where I didn't have to go get a shot anymore and got an updated MRI they said yeah the spacing in your neck has come back the years of not taking bumps and and not uh, taking care of it correctly the neck was better Mm. Uh, so no more major headaches Uh, it was good so in the meantime, uh, Danny Duggan is promoting tours with CWE, and he's always looking for guys. And so he calls me up and says, "Hey, we're coming through. You want to wrestle?" "No, no, I don't. I'm I'm done." And I had been, uh, I did do you know some guest ring announcing for him when he would come through the area, and you know go and do that, or maybe put guys up at my place when they were coming through town to save him on his hotel bills and stuff like that. I did one mixed tag with uh, with the midget wrestlers. So it was myself and Short Sleeve Sampson mm-hmm. against a radio DJ and Prince Akeem. Uh But you know, you'd hardly qualify that as you know, the role that I had in that as you know a match. It was, mm-hmm. it was kind of a a comedy spot. But uh, then he called me up one time and said, "Listen, we we're we're on the backswing of a national tour. Some guys got hurt in Saskatchewan. Uh, we really." could use you. Could you come and help us one night? Because we're a little far out from Winnipeg for those guys to come out. We just need help here. The next night we're closer to Winnipeg and it's close enough to get some other guys out. So I said, yeah, I'll do it one night. You know, knowing that my wife really wasn't warm to me getting back into wrestling, you know, very concerned about my Mm -hmm. neck. So I said, don't do anything on Facebook. Just advertise locally in the town uh, because... You know, if if my wife finds out in advance, this deal is dead. So uh, we went ahead and and did the match. And when I got there, he was so excited now that he's actually, like, lured me back in. He said, uh, hey, you know, now that you're here, you know, why don't we set up an angle, set up a return? I said, listen, man, I haven't wrestled in five years. I don't even know if I can still go. Mm -hmm. I might go out there and take one bump and I'm done. I said, let's play it by ear. I'll go out there and, and I'll wrestle and if I feel like I might have another one, I'll cut the promo. If I don't, I'm just gonna leave the ring. Mm -hmm. And so I went out and and did the match, and I was blown up sky high, like I had no ring wind at all to speak of, but I didn't hurt. And so we set up a promo for the return match, and, and then over the next few months, it was kind of a match here and there, and then suddenly it was, okay, every tour he was on, I was on the Manitoba Dates. And then now, uh, back in in BC, um, I'm wrestling pretty well every weekend, for one company or another.
0: Mm -hmm. Seems to be the case. Yeah. So how are you enjoying it now? And are two years into this return, are you still feeling pretty good about it? Yeah, physically I feel great.
1: Uh, I think I'm enjoying this run more because there's also a great self awareness about where I'm at in my life and career. It's I don't have the same pressure thinking that uh, you know, there could be a WWE run in my future So I want to be working towards that. I'm 44 years old. Mm -hmm. The WWE is not calling Uh, But I'm you know, I also got two young kids at home, and I'm not interested to have that schedule Uh, You know, I'm happy to you know, do the matches that are you know, within three hours of home And I can be home in my bed the same night, Mm -hmm. you know And don't have a lot of the the trials and tribulations of a touring wrestler and, and have a quality of life outside of the wrestling business. So it's been uh, tremendously fantastic. And to uh, really have an opportunity in this run to give back. So to take, and I, and I say this a lot to, to guys as context, because they'll say the wrestling business has changed so much and nobody understands the old way. And I say it's not that they don't understand, it's that there's nobody to teach them. The problem with professional wrestling today is that nobody on The Independence has seen it be any good. And what I say uh, that, if you have someone who is uh, 20 years old and has been following wrestling their whole life, that's still only since the year 2000. And they're not going to remember the first five years anyway when they were toddlers. Mm-hmm. So t- they've only followed wrestling since 2005. There was a lot of good stuff before that. right? Uh, and I point back to You know, the 80s and the heavy character development that Vince was doing when he was bringing guys from regional to national. Mm -hmm. Where you have those blood feuds between Rick Roode and Jake the Snake Roberts and how they set up that storyline could all still very much apply today. The benefit is now, because nobody has that frame of reference, now the Attitude Era of the late 90s was... The golden age of wrestling.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you go back a decade before that and look at the way that characters were developed and stories were told, we can now, you know, recycle that and bring it forward to today, and have it be just as fresh as it was then, and just as effective as it was then. What's old is new again. Yeah. So, to be able to, you know, share these influences with talent that are trying to find themselves in the same way that I was in the nineties and say, hey, you could try this approach, or here's a guy whose matches you should be watching that you're not thinking about. Uh, certainly everybody's watching Ric Flair and Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat and Chris Benoit, but what about the Ricky Mortons and mm-hmm. the Jake Roberts and the Rick Roods, you know, who were tremendous characters and tremendously over,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and their body of work now is so accessible with YouTube and all these other platforms?
0: Well, even take a character like superstar Billy Graham, who at one point in his career was at the top of the world, but a lot of newer wrestlers don't even, have barely even seen any of his work.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, And, you know, definitely when we watch some of that wrestling today compared to what we know fans want, there's some of it we have to roll our eyes at and say, Mm -hmm. wow, that was so incredibly telegraphed or so incredibly hokey. But respect that in that day, that was, you know, the standard that, that made people go wild, But I think there's so much incredible talent, and I think that's one of the things that I enjoy the most, is when you look at the locker room right now and see the potential of talent. A decade ago when I was here, I had a a very big hand in mentoring uh, the Singh brothers uh, during their early years, and taking them on the road and touring with them. You know, doing a tour in the Maritimes where I was in the opening match with Gerv Sira, uh, Mm -hmm. now, now Sunil Singh, every night for 26 nights in really helping him to really understand the psychology and the business of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Um, So now to take a look at the success they've had uh, and guys like Kyle O'Reilly, I wrestled him in one of his first matches. Let's apply those same principles and the same lessons that those guys were given when they were being mentored to this generation's guys. Because I think there are some guys right now on the scene that have the potential to reach that top rung of wrestling if they take the right approach. And you certainly, uh, you know, you, you're having the opportunity to share a locker room with them. Guys mm-hmm. like Braden Goss, guys like Jay oh, Starcy, Maddox Static, uh, Cheetah Bear Jude Dawkins, mm-hmm. Riley Jade, who's already had uh, participation in a WWE uh, development camp and has mm-hmm. been called up for extra work with them on SmackDown. So, you know, let's, let's work with talent on their goals not let them fall into the complacency of being a big fish in a small pond Mm -hmm. and keep them working towards what that ultimate goal was. Nobody got into professional wrestling just because they wanted to be the the biggest wrestler in BC. Everybody got in with Wrestlemania as the goal. We all know that Mm -hmm. at some level. As you get in and the realities of the business start to happen, sometimes you start to dismiss that goal Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as well. Maybe that's not possible. Uh, But we want to let them know, especially right now with the competition where you've got Impact Wrestling, Mm -hmm. AEW, Ring of Honor, WWE, Japan, uh, Europe is now more open than ever it was. If you have a career aspiration to do something in wrestling, Mm -hmm. you can. Uh, let's, Let's leverage all the relationships we have from our experience in the business to your advantage and help you to get there.
0: Okay. Awesome. So you happened to mention some of the young talent that has definitely been bursting on to the scene. So what are some of the things when you're trying to keep an eye open for young talent that like you feel you want to help progress? What is something that you're keeping your eyes open for in that? And if any young wrestlers happen to be listening right now, is there any advice that you can possibly give to a young wrestler that is in this social media age?
1: The number one thing uh, that, that a wrestler needs to have is the right attitude. Uh, if you've got the wrong attitude, uh, you're not even going to get through the doors of a company like WWE. Uh, because, you know, egos need to be checked immediately. Uh, and I've often said to promoters, you know, they bring me in to, to wrestle and they'll say, you know, you've got a familiarity with our roster. Who do you want to work with? And if I don't have a familiarity with their roster, I'll say, I want you to give me somebody that wants to work. I don't care if they can work. Mm-hmm. You can give me the greenest guy that has the most heart and we're going we're gonna to pull out a match that they're going to be proud of and it's going to help to build their confidence and help them move forward. So we look for a positive attitude and no ego, number one. Number two, right now, wrestling is more aesthetic than it ever has been. So if you don't look the part of a superstar, if you don't look like a guy who could be an action figure that they could uh, monetize in that way, you're not getting signed. Uh, there are so many people looking for a spot. You know, Getting a contract with the WWE now, uh, particularly as a nondescript white guy, is probably, you probably have a greater opportunity winning the lottery. Um, so you need a right attitude, you need to have the look. Uh, and the third thing, very critical to anyone's success, you need to be able to talk. You need to be able to deliver a promo that talks people into the seats. And I think that a lot of that has been lost over time Uh, Kevin Nash anytime he does an interview in Scott Hall They celebrate that they were the guys that were responsible for implementing guaranteed contracts in wrestling Guaranteed contracts in wrestling for wrestlers. Yeah, that's great. You've got a bottom bottom line guarantee on what you're gonna make however, what has also happened as a result of that though is you've taken the incentive out of an incentive driven business so if you're on a guaranteed contract and you've been given a shitty storyline, you just carry it out like a soldier because you just want to keep your job. Mm-hmm. When your money and your earnings depends on your ability individually to draw, now you go back and take a look at the promos that Dusty Rhodes and Roddy Piper and Ric Flair were cutting in the 80s and seeing like how off the wall Roddy Piper was in his promos, but it was about drawing. It was about making money. And if you can't talk, if you can't carry your program, nobody's picking you up.
0: Some very, very solid advice from Mr. Beefy Goodness himself. And I think that's where we're going to cut off part one for today. Don't worry, part two is going to be coming at you very soon here. I had originally planned on releasing part two closer to when the Cauliflower Alley Club does their annual meeting in Las Vegas every September. Unfortunately, though, like a lot of other things, that happens to have been postponed until September. But don't worry, we're not going to make you wait till September for part two of my conversation here with Vance Nevada. We're still probably going to be throwing that your way either here in March or either in April so that you guys can find out a little bit about Vance's book wrestling in the Canadian West. We can find out a little bit about some of the characters that you can read about in that book, some of the historical figures in Canadian wrestling. And of course, we also dive a little bit into the detail about the Cauliflower Alley Club itself. So if any of you wrestlers are on the fence about checking that out for when it is rescheduled for September, We're going to give you a little bit of a look into what exactly it is, so maybe you can help, maybe it'll help get you off the fence and get you inside of the conference itself. I myself, I'm hoping to make it down there, but of course, I've also had a few other things that have been canceled, and I'm hoping to make a few other things. I've got a music conference out in Winnipeg known as Breakout West in October. That I'm hoping to make. So hopefully hopefully we can fit the Cauliflower Alley Club in there beforehand as well. Either way, I definitely do plan on becoming a member. Alright, I want to thank Vance Nevada for joining me here on this episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. And I definitely want to give you guys, the listeners, a loud, roaring Desert Tiger Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode like you guys always do. If you're new to the show and you enjoyed what you heard, maybe you wanna go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Maybe you enjoyed this episode enough that you wanna share it on your social media. If you do, maybe you wanna go ahead and tag me, the Colton G, maybe the Desert Tiger Podcast, and even Vance Nevada, so that we can show you some love for showing, well, us a little bit of love. And of course, if you guys maybe even want to go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes, that would also be freaking fantastic and would help us out a ton. I mean, if the other services gave the option for a five-star review as well, we would ask we would ask for those too, but iTunes just happens to be the one that does that. Stitcher also does reviews. So if you happen to be listening on Stitcher, I would also take a five-star review there. I think we have one five-star review on Stitcher. We have a few more over on iTunes, and we would always accept a few more. Next week on the show, I might just throw out the first of the best of Desert Tiger. I was originally going to do the uh, best of. I was going to spread them out into... Uh, feel good moments and then the feels where we get really emotional I was going to do the feels first and then I was going to do two parts of the uh, feel good moments But I think we're actually going to do one of the feel good moments first just because I think so- Everybody needs a little bit of that in their lives right now And then after that somewhere in April, we'll probably do the feels and then we'll do part two of the feel goods once again uh, probably either later in April or come May so that might be what comes this week that or we will either give you part two of Vance Nevada I'm not exactly sure where we're going I'm also talking to a few musicians who are currently trying to scramble to uh replan a few things so I might also throw one of them on depending on exactly where things are as I'm sure is happening with a lot of you, things are a little bit up in the air, but we still we still move forward. We adapt baby because we are the desert tiger and wherever we may roam, wherever the sand goes between our paws, we're going to let our roar go as loud as we possibly freaking can and normally when I end these episodes I always talk about finding your mountain and climbing to the top and I always say in that that sometimes the rocks are gonna fall out in beneath your feet because that's adversity well we're going through a little bit of adversity right now and I always say after that that adversity makes us stronger so as a community let's band together let's be stronger as human beings and bet be better human beings let's grow from this and take it as a learning experience and after it is all said and done after it's all blown over we can go back to being incredible individuals that have taken this time to not be those those who are sp- spreading panic, those who are making people worry. Let's be those people that help set people at ease. Those that help our community, our neighbors, that help them grow in this time of need as much as we possibly can. And with that, I will leave you with a big old roaring. Bye-bye.